Well, good morning, Zen Center friends. It's lovely to see all the little boxes. <clears throat> Those are people. <laughs> Those are people. It's lovely to see all of you this morning. Um, <clears throat> so uh, um, I'm, I'm talking to you this morning um, about where the bread goes. The name of my talk is Where Does the Bread Go? Um, I gave this talk about three weeks ago at uh, Santa Barbara Zen Center at the kind invitation of our uh, Sangha member, our, our friend uh, Monica here, who will be patient enough to listen to this talk a second time through. <clears throat> It'll inevitably be different. That's kind of the way these things tend to go. Um, but I would, I would like to start, if I could, with um, sharing with you a cartoon. So I'm going to do a screen share and hope I don't get <clears throat> in any kind of copyright violating problems. Is that something everybody's able to see? Can you all see that okay? Okay. For those of you who cannot see it, <clears throat> um, we have an old Calvin and Hobbes strip probably 30 years ago. This would have first been published and they're standing together in the kitchen. And our friend Calvin says to Hobbes, hey, you wanna see something weird? Watch. You put bread in this slot of the toaster and push down this lever. And then in a few minutes, toast pops up. And Hobbes is looking in the toaster and says, wow, where does the bread go? Calvin says, beats me. Isn't that weird? <laughs> oh, dear. Any excuse to look at cartoons. Um, so I want to talk about that because I saw that again, that strip, <clears throat> a couple of months ago. I hadn't seen it in many, many years, hadn't thought about it in many, many years. But I have been reading a lot of Dogen recently, the fall practice period, as many of you know, um, here at MZMC, focused on the teachings of Zen Master Dogen. So he was much on my mind, as he was much on the mind of a lot of us. <clears throat> and when I saw this, uh, comic strip again online, I went, oh, that reminds me of Dogen's famous firewood and ash teaching. So <clears throat> the joke, of course, here in our, in our comic strip, which I will now ruin <laughs> for, for all of you by dissecting it, nothing ruins a joke quicker, right, is that Calvin and Hobbes are failing to consider the bread to toast transformation as one thing changing. Right? They see instead bread and toast as two separate and unrelated things. That's the joke. What's neat about our, uh, about our friend Dogen is although he does not offer exactly the same perception, he offers a teaching that's very close, actually. <laughs> and he uses a different but very similar metaphor um, to illustrate not only non- self and non-separateness, but also he gives us a hint um, of his understanding of how he sees time. So this is a short passage, many of you know, of course, um, but this is a short passage from his famous essay, Genjo Koan, um, and I'll read it for all of you. Firewood becomes ash, and it does not become firewood again. Yet do not suppose that the ash is future 
and the firewood passed. You should understand that firewood abides in the phenomenal expression of firewood, which fully includes past and future and is independent of past and future. Ash abides in the phenomenal expression of ash, which fully includes future and past. Just as firewood does not become firewood again after it is ash, you do not return to birth after death. Birth is an expression complete this moment. Death is an expression complete this moment. They are like winter and spring. You do not call winter the beginning of spring, nor summer the end of spring. So that's just a short part of Genjo Koan. <clears throat> you can kind of see how I got there with Calvin and Hobbes talking about bread and toast, separate but not separate, firewood becoming ash, but Dogen denying that ash is the future of firewood. So his line, ash abides in the phenomenal expression of ash, which fully includes future and past. We could say bread becomes toast and it does not become bread again. Yet do not suppose that the toast is future and the bread is past. So Buddhism teaches us that there's no separate abiding thing called bread that changes into a separate abiding thing called toast. Buddhism teaches that bread is moment, firewood is moment, toast is moment, ash is moment, tree and seed and earth are all moment. You, right now, taking this breath, moment. You, feeling what you're feeling, right now, moment. A full, phenomenal expression moment. And um, because this is Buddhism, and because I am very practically minded, as I understand Zen to be, and because we are a practice center, <clears throat> um, let's take this kind of abstract teaching about causality and non-separateness and time gets very heady and very conceptual very quickly, which is wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, but let's get practical. Why does it matter? Why are we talking about toast? Why are we talking about firewood? Um, we get practical in Buddhism by looking at suffering. That's the root of this ancient and beautiful tradition that we are a part of. <clears throat> and the core of Buddhism is ex its examination of dukkha, 
what we call suffering, resistance, struggle, constriction, the human tendency to wish things were different than they are. That's what the root of the whole thing is. And that's its practical application at some point. How does this teaching affect my experience of being alive? Right? If it doesn't have a practical application, we don't usually spend much time with it. So we start with our, we start with our suffering. We start with our struggle and our relationship to it. Right? That's always our bottom line. So let's say you're feeling uh, this morning as you're listening uh, to this talk, let's say you're feeling just a little irritable. It's a very common human experience. That is our first noble truth, <clears throat> right? All human experience is characterized or touched by dukkha. So if you look for it in this moment, you will find some dukkha that is Buddha's <laughs> promise to all of us. If you look for it, you will find some little bit of grit or perhaps some large bit of grit whatever form that might take for you today. So let's say you're feeling a little irritable. Um, you know, you got cut off in traffic maybe uh, on your way to Zen Center or you got activated um, by somebody's coughing during Zazen this morning when we were sitting together. Maybe you're still ruminating. You notice during Zazen that you're still turning something that someone said to you over and over uh, in your mind. There's some irritation. So we can pull in our teaching. Irritation abides in the phenomenal expression of irritation, which fully includes future and past. Or if for you it was busy mind, busy mind abides in the phenomenal expression of busy mind, which fully includes future and past. Grief abides in the phenomenal expression of grief fully includes future and past. You see the pattern. Whatever word, whatever symbol, right? Words are just symbols. Whatever symbol you apply, whatever language you use to describe the nature of your experience abides in its phenomenal expression, fully including future and past. Also independent of future and past. Isn't that interesting, according to Dogen, right? Fully including future and past means all moments abide in this moment. All moments abide in this moment. It's interesting to me when I um, read a lot of the first generation um, Japanese and Korean, primarily Japanese and Korean um, Soto Zen teachers, uh, some Rinzai Zen teachers too, that came here, <clears throat> um, perhaps because of translation, perhaps because of the way our, our mind patterning uh, is formed by the nature of the language that we are taught and speak. Perhaps there's no Dharma in this, but it's not lost in me that when you listen to a lot of that first generation of teachers that came here to America to offer us Zen, uh, the present moment was a phrase you don't hear. It just doesn't come up. This moment. That article, this or that, doesn't come up much in their Dharma talks. I noticed that. I think it's interesting how often when you listen to them talk about moment, they just say moment. They don't say this moment, the moment. Sometimes, 
but usually not. That's interesting to me. Again, maybe it's linguistic, but I kind of do like the idea that because there is only moment to distinguish, it seems unnecessary. This earth, we don't say this earth very often because there aren't a plethora of earths from which to choose. The moon, yeah, we only have the one. This moon, that moon, present moon, past moon. So oftentimes they just say moment. All moments abide in moment or this moment, the one moment. The breath you're taking now includes future and includes past. So again, why does this have a practical application for us? This teaching has a practical application for us because it now makes sense that we would be able to touch anger, stillness, grief, oh, confusion, contentment, right now. All moments abide in this moment. It only makes sense. We could meet our sadness with compassion and our delusion with clarity right now because there is literally no other moment in which to do it. Our karma didn't happen. Our karma is happening, all of it, now. When else could it happen? That's interesting. So we needn't try to escape the phenomenal expression of winter to try to get to the phenomenal expression of summer. Doesn't work that way. We needn't try to escape the phenomenal expression of irritation to try to get to the phenomenal expression of happiness either. That's what we do as humans. We always want to try to escape winter to get to summer, escape irritation to get to happy. It's what human beings do. It's the first noble truth. We know it's our nature and we know that that causes us suffering. So this very interesting idea that Dogen is opening a door for us into is that we can be with this as it is, the phenomenal expression of moment as it is, and that we're in relationship with all of it. So I'm using the word relationship there. I'm using the word relationship because it's about intimacy in Zen, right? Enlightenment is just intimacy. That's all it is. It's just non-separateness. That's all it is, intimacy non-separateness from. Suffering is caused by a refusal to relate. That's all it really is. Like, ah, no, I want it to be different. I will relate to you when you show up the way that I, I want you to. But I'm not going to relate to you un un until you show up that way. Do you feel it? Conditional love. Huh. Suffering. I wish it was different. Uh. Refusal to relate. That's dukkha. Refusal to relate. And the irony is because there is only one moment, I'm refusing to relate to everything. Right? I imagine it's just the part of it. I'm okay with this moment as it is, except for that bit. Well, and a little bit of that bit. And you know what? It could stand to be a little warmer in this room now that I think about it. 
But the truth is, this is how this is. It's exactly how this is, the phenomenal expression of moment. So my refusal, there's the birth of my dukkha. There's the birth of my suffering. There's my refusal to relate, my refusal of intimacy. In short, that's me insisting I'm not awakened. I'm not enlightened. I insist upon it because this doesn't show up the way that I want it to. Do you feel the separation there? I am not it, and I'm not only not it, but I'm above it or separate from it or judging it or holding it in some way in contempt. I don't like your coughing during my zazen. I don't like grandma dying. I don't like getting cut off in traffic. I don't like my bank balance. I refuse. I refuse. So I want to skip this winter moment to get to that nice summer moment that I imagine is coming. That part of us doesn't want to feel the sad or anger or confusion. The part of us that doesn't want to feel that is our dukkha, right? We're very insistent on this. All of us know this. I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just reminding all of us of our deeply seated human tendency to resist. It's so normal for us to resist something that, that hurts. It's very normal. It's our animal nature, our mammal nature. Right? It hurts, we go the other way. That's what animals do. It's part of how we survive, actually, right? Kind of makes sense. And I'm also reminding us of our spiritual nature, <laughs> our Buddha nature, our awakened nature which does exactly the opposite. It does exactly the opposite. We know what metta does, maitri, loving kindness. The awakened heart does. It rushes toward suffering every time. Rushes toward that which hurts. Oh, oh, I see that you're hurting. How do I move toward you? How do I understand you? How do I hold you? How do we get closer to you? How do we become more intimate? You know that. You've had that experience. And a very human nature that wants to do the opposite. Ay, 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 ay. No, thank you. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There's always an ash moment we want to get to, a summer moment, a life moment. Yeah. I see this a lot. I see this a lot. I meet with people. I'm fortunate enough to spend a lot of time meeting with people one-to-one, -one, uh, Zen students. Um, I'm a spiritual director, so I meet with a lot of people who are not Zen students, agnostics and atheists and Christians and not otherwise specifieds and couldn't care lesses. And I've learned exactly what you already know, which is this is a human thing. It's got nothing to do with Buddhists or non-Buddhists. It's just a human tendency every day in each of us. Right? That's part of our instinctual no. And so what I'm pointing to, what I'm aware of, what I'm reminded of, is that this teaching about moment includes all of moment, fully including future and past. And so what does that mean? It means there's nowhere to go. If you sat with us this morning during Zazen, it's what you just practiced. Zazen is a physical expression of there is nowhere to go. It's a physical expression of there is no escape. That is not bad news, but there is no escape. So we sit still. In fact, normally, normally meaning during Sashin or during normal um, Soto Zen, Zendo protocol, we sit facing the wall. 
that's how fully we embody and understand there is nowhere to go. You will sooner or later face Mu. It will show up. There's going to be a big no. Boom. In fact, it's there now. How could it not be? And because this is Soto Zen, we understand that that big no transforms into a yes. There is only yes. But we have to make our way through. We have to really eat and digest fully the no. Our animal nature, our mammal nature, our human nature is not going anywhere. The idea of trying to rise above it or escape from it is not going to happen. In fact, the idea of trying to escape from it is part of it. <laughs> That's why we sit cross-legged and face the wall. Enactment ritual, Zazen. Enactment ritual. What does the enlightened mind do? I'm going to physically take the shape of enlightened mind. Enactment ritual means see the yes and the no. See all moments in this moment. Meet your big no with your big yes. Your much, much, much bigger yes. And hold it. It's not going to leave. Your no will never leave. But it does get to understand. It does get to get held. It gets to be related to... It gets to be included. Oh, isn't that interesting? Now no more suffering. Right? This is just, this is us understanding our delusion and caring for it with our enlightenment. Dogen talks a lot about that. Even the greatest enlightenment, including delusion. Of course. Of course. Not separate. Not separate. Right? So what this teaching around bread and toast and firewood natch um, gives me as a practitioner in this, in its most practical sense is um, the invitation to understand that this moment contains everything that I actually need, right? There's no arena for our compassion, my compassion, your compassion, our collective compassion, other than this, we needn't look elsewhere in another space. We don't need to look for it in another time. We don't need to look for it in other people. We don't need to look for it in. Just moment. This is where my compassion can show up. Oh, yes, that is correct. This is where my wisdom can show up. Yes, that is correct. There is no phenomenal expression of Buddha other than this. Not 2,500 years ago expression. No, this is the phenomenal expression. The phenomenal expression. That means there's no escaping from Buddha. No escaping from Buddha. No escaping from ourselves as Buddha, because we are Buddha. And so we really don't have a choice. When we realize that's what we are, we don't really have much of a choice, do we? But to relate to what arises with kindness. When you realize you're Buddha, you don't want to push anything that hurts away. It doesn't occur to you because you're Buddha. It's not how Buddha works, right? It actually makes perfect sense. You just meet it with kindness because it's the nature of Buddha and you figured out you are that. Oh, yeah. When delusion arises, you meet it with clarity. Fear doesn't arise. That constriction, I wish it was different. This is what we are. This freedom, the spaciousness, the yes. No escape from our Buddha nature. So we relate to every dimension of moment, every dimension of moment with acceptance with care, love, 
This is why the teaching of no escape is so profound for us in Soto Zen. Why wall gazing, cross-legged sitting is so prized. Because no escape actually means perfect freedom. I don't know that we would see it otherwise. I don't know that we would see it otherwise if it wasn't emphasized like this so strongly. No escape means perfect freedom. Hmm. So let's shift gears. I'll give you another voice here. Um, uh, Like the Genjo Kwan passage that I read to you about firewood and ash, um, Mary Oliver, a name so familiar in settings like ours that I don't even need to tell you who that is. Um, I love her work. Many, many of us love her work. Um, It's a bold comparison, but um, I'm told that when the great Persian um, poet Rumi died, members of all of the faith traditions in the world, uh, representatives of all the faith traditions in the world attended his funeral because they all thought, well, he's, he's ours. <laughs> right? The Jews thought that's, that's ours. We listen to his voice and go, yes, he's talking to us. And the Christians thought, well, that's, he's ours. He's speaking Christ, Christian language to us and the Buddhists and the Muslims, you, you, you see it, right? I don't know if that's historically true or not, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Mary Oliver has a little bit of that kind of energy around her, doesn't she? I hear her mentioned in sermons in Christian churches when I'm uh, hanging out with my Christian friends, and I see her pulled up in Dharma talks, and I see her pulled up in secular settings. I hear her quoted in mindfulness classes. I hear my Jewish friends quoting her. It's like there's something inherent about um, her viewpoint that I think borrows from our collective uh, spiritual insight as human beings. So we'll, we'll bring in Mary today. Um, she wrote a, a poem called Fall Song. It is now November, as I am giving this talk to you. And I first read this, I don't know, I'm going to guess 30 years ago. I think it actually came out earlier than that. It's from her book, American Primitive. And that uh, book won her the Pulitzer, won her the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. Um, and if you've read it, you understand why. It's, it's a, a triumphant achievement. But I read this probably 30 odd years ago. I don't remember... I must have discovered Buddhism by then. I had to have. Um, but I read the poem, and um, it was beautiful. I read the whole book. It was beautiful. This one little two-line stanza stuck with me, kind of stored itself in the back of my brain. You know how that is, right? That one line from the song, that one scene from the movie, that one stanza from the poem. There's something about it that just grabs you and rolls itself around um, in your mind. That's what the last two lines of this poem did for me. I thought about them over and over and over and over and over and just thought there's something there for me. There's something there for me. Um, And to me, it connects with what we're talking about today. Um, Not only our season, because it happens to be fall right now, but it feels like it connects to what we're talking about. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But I'll read it for you. Um, And you can decide for yourself. It's not a very long poem. Uh, Fall song goes like this. Another year gone, leaving everywhere its rich spiced residues, vines, leaves, the uneaten fruits crumbling damply in the shadows, unmattering back from the particular island of this summer, this now, that now is nowhere except underfoot, moldering, 
in that black subterranean castle of unobservable mysteries, roots and sealed seeds and the wanderings of water. This I try to remember when times measure painfully chafes. For instance, when autumn flares out at the last, boisterous and like us, longing to stay, how everything lives, shifting from one bright vision to another, forever in these momentary pastures. From one bright vision to another, forever in these momentary pastures. That's the line stuck with me all these years from one bright vision to another. Boom, boom, boom. Forever in these momentary pastures. It's a brilliant line in my estimation. This is art and so it's subjective. But I think about bread and toast and firewood and ash and I go, yeah, that's feeling like the same thing. Boom, boom, boom. Connected and not connected, each containing all of them and each completely separate. I kind of get it. That sort of is what moment feels like in human consciousness, right? We have limited capacity because we have containers that are limited, right? Consciousness isn't limited, but we, the separate beings that we imagine that we are in our separate limited finite containers that we imagine we are, have limited capacity. So it's interesting that we think of it as click, 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 kind of like a movie shown so slowly that you can see each individual frame and they speed up. It just seems like one thing happening, flow. Right. Read Dogen's um, fascicle Uji, his essay Uji, um, if you want to know more about being in time and how he really understands this stuff. Not that he's the ultimate authority. He's just one Zen voice on how this works. But here's what I'm interested in. Forever in these momentary pastures. Forever in these momentary pastures. It feels like she just, in that one line, summed up everything that Dogen's Genjo Koan passage talks about because she says forever, that's eternal, that's whole. Forever is non-separate, forever is complete, right? Forever is undivided, it literally is non-separateness. It does mean whole, forever, all of it, eternity. And then momentary pastures, forever in these momentary pastures. So then momentary, immediately, ah, impermanent. Discrete, separate. That feels so much like our human experience. The eternal and the impermanent, completely fused, completely non-separate. Very difficult for our, for our hearts to apprehend. I'm saying hearts because, yeah, conceptually, I guess sometimes this organ can help us get there. I feel like this organ's probably better. Maybe a marriage of the two is the best of all. This feels to me like there's something in us that can apprehend the part of us that is in time, the part of us that we see in the mirror. You know, when you see, in, see yourself in the mirror, sometimes you go, oh, 
how did that happen? <laughs> right. I'm laughing because it's funny. It's sort of, I guess, tragic or irritating or amusing. I don't know. It's a bunch of different things, but I'm sure everybody here has had that experience at least a few times of going, what happened? What? When did that happen? What I'm looking at is in time. This thing, this bread is turning into toast. This firewood is turning into ash. Oh my God, the five remembrances. Oh, going, going, gone. The teaching of impermanence. That's why we have teachings like the one we have today. This is forever. Sure, it's birth and death, but nothing's being born or dying. Endings and beginnings are arbitrary, right? We are always at the intersection, are we not, of eternity and time. Change, matter, form, separateness, birth, death, and eternity. No time. Wholeness. Complete non-separateness. That's the great koan. That's the great koan. The symbol of the cross, too, right? So, so to wrap up. It gets abstract, doesn't it? It does in any way when I talk about it, despite my best intentions, friends. <laughs> past, past all the heady and abstract foolishness <clears throat> that I am offering you. What I appreciate most is the feeling. This organ is the wiser organ. What I appreciate, and the only reason I'm offering you this today is because there is a feeling that is created in my heart that this um, teaching connects me to. That the truth of my entire life is right here and right now. That's very, very, very profound for me. I'm not even sure what to do with it. It makes me want to cry with grief and cry with joy. I kind of resist it and I kind of embrace it. I can create all sorts of splits. I can sort of see the parts of me that I don't normally see and I can feel parts of me that I don't normally feel. When I really meditate on that idea, when I really call up, all of it is right here you're touching it you're not separate from it all of it right it's more than my capacity i know that but what that moves in me what that awakens in me the thing that that stirs in me are dimensions of my life that i don't always see forever in these momentary pastures all of it is right now in both its infinite sacredness life infinite sacredness and all of its infinite ordinariness stuff just changing giving a talk in a half an hour you'll be doing something else raking leaves picking up groceries infinitely ordinary and infinitely sacred at exactly the same place because we're always at the intersection always right doesn't it actually feel good it does for me to know that you can care for the entirety of your life 
right now, that there's no part left out. When you meet the fullness of moment, what's arising in you right now, right? The itch, the back pain, the feeling of cloth against your skin, your breath catching in your throat, that memory of your grandfather, that how you meet that is how you meet everything, right? You can care for eternity by making toast. You can care for the entirety of your life by just holding the thing that shows up. There isn't anything left out of that phenomenal expression. Includes all of the future and all of the past. A self-realizing moment, a whole moment. So I'll close with one last little line here from our friend Dogen, who got us into this whole mess. <clears throat> I wish I had another Calvin and Hobbes to wrap up with. That would probably be more satisfying to me personally, but that's okay. <laughs> maybe Dogen was like really funny in real life or something. He strikes me as like the least funny person ever, but maybe in real life he was a hoot. So he's the voice we're going to use. He said this um, later on in that same essay, Genjo Koan. Enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. The whole moon and the entire sky are reflected in dewdrops on the grass or even in one drop of water. The depth of the drop is the height of the moon. The whole thing reflected in this. All of eternity, one moment. Do you see it? Oh. He was a poet. Okay. Well, I'm grateful for your attention this morning. I hope this is of some practical help to you in some way. And if not, that's okay too. It's good to, it's good to be here. Thank you.